Somebody said, if Jesus rose from the dead, nothing else really matters. And if he didn't rise from the dead, nothing matters at all. I think that's true. Without the resurrection, nothing really matters. Life doesn't matter. Really. Like the guy that built the barn. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's what he said. That's life without hope. That's life without truth. It's life without life. It's life without future. So why live it? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. But he did, and it does matter. <laughs> Nothing else matters. Okay, all of this talking about the feasts obviously is filled with the resurrection story and all of it, really. And uh, three times a year they were to gather, first month, third month, seventh month of religious calendar. They celebrated, remembered, commemorated, like we're doing today. We're remembering and commemorating the resurrection of Jesus together, aren't we? That's what we're thinking about. That's what we're doing. So we still do that, and it's good to do. They did it for other reasons. They did it because God wanted them to, and it also helped in their, their cultural understanding of what really happened to them. So at Passover, you have the picture of Jesus shedding his blood. You understand all that. Unleavened bread that they were to take, and that speaks of his death, really. Uh, the, 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 the lamb that was roasted, all eaten, consumed, or buried what was left. That's his death. His resurrection came at first fruits as they passed through the Red Sea. Uh, that was commemorated. His resurrection was commemorated. Our own resurrection is commemorated there, really. Uh, our spiritual resurrection, we died with Christ. We rose with him. If he didn't rise from the dead, we have no hope of resurrection ourselves. Uh, when in truth, that has already happened. You've already been raised from the dead. You've already been resurrected. That's already happened. You identified with Christ in his death. You identify with him in his resurrection. So resurrection means everything. And then the second part of the feast, the second feast, Pentecost, happened 50 days exactly from the time they passed through the Red Sea. It took them 50 days to get to Mount Sinai where the law was given. It was exactly 50 days from the moment that uh, 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 Jesus rose from the dead. 50 days later, uh, Pentecost happened the Holy Spirit came, invaded human beings' lives. It's God in us, our hope of glory. It's, uh, it changed everything. The birth of the church. The church was formed and born uh, at Pentecost. The bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the temple of God now. You are living stones in this temple that God is building. It has nothing to do with brick and mortar. It has everything to do with human beings and spiritual life. That's what he's doing. We come together to worship because corporately we have a voice together that is more difficult for us to express individually. We all come together and do this together in celebration. But there's another feast to keep, and that's tabernacles. We looked at two parts of that, one trumpets, another the feast day of atonement. The last part of the feast is tabernacle itself or the feast of booths. Now, booths, not booze. <laughs> feast of booths. <laughs> the, <laughs> hey, it might be good if I'm sure they had some. Feast of booths. 
Okay. <laughs> All of this has tremendous significance in, in spiritual reality. It just does. It, your own life follows this same pattern, it, it, or it can. Uh, the church can follow this same pattern. Jesus followed this pattern. The Jews followed this pattern. God has a pattern. He has a blueprint. There's a heavenly blueprint that's being followed to the T. All of this happened according to God's sovereignty. And it tells us of a time that's coming that hasn't come yet. Not fully. So there's little known, really. I can go, I can go through a hundred pages of stuff to show you all these little types and shadows that are in all of these feasts that speak of Christ and speak of us and speak of the church and speak of future events. And the, the, the evidence of all this is really quite overwhelming. I don't have time to do that, nor do you have the patience to listen to it all. I listed some things in the bulletin each week that, you know, scriptures that you can look up, you can read. Uh, you'd, it'd be good if you did. You'd, you'd enjoy a lot of it. You'd see a lot of things. But it definitely speaks of the end times. It's the last days. It's the seventh month, the end of things. It's the last feast. It does speak, I believe, of future, present and future events. Don't know what all that's going to look like or what it's going to mean. But I do know a few things. Filled with hope, no reason to fear. Whatever is in store, God's going to grace us not only to be, go through it, but grace us to be productive and fruitful in the midst of all of it to a measure that the church has never seen, even on the day of Pentecost. There's a harvest on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 got saved that day. 5,000 followed quickly. It wasn't long until the testimony was that these people had turned the city of Jerusalem upside down through what God was doing and saying through them. So, there's a harvest. There's going to be a greater harvest in tabernacles. The first month brought some rain, little harvest. Next feast, more rain, smaller harvest, drought. Then the latter rain, early rain, come together to produce a harvest. When I say rain, that's activity of the Holy Spirit. It's really what it is. To produce a harvest that the, the church has never known or never seen in such a short period of time. A lot of people will be coming to the kingdom. Now I want to spend just a minute to go over something. Somebody turn the clock on. Do you have the clock? I, don't, I can't see the other one. All righty. I, I want to touch on one thing in atonement before we go and just spend a little while in tabernacles, okay? The Feast Day of Atonement, as you know, once a year, the high priest would go through all of the rituals of cleansings and all of this for himself. He was the only one that could go into the Holy of Holies. That only once a year, and preparation had to be made for that, including the sacrifice of a perfect little lamb, okay? Once a year. Now, when that was accomplished, what happened was this. The sins of the nation were atoned for, for that period of time, covered. It covered their sin. That's what it did. Hebrew says that this ritual, once a year, under the law, brings up 
to them the fact that they sinned, that they're sinners. It reminds them they're sinners. They're always the reminder, you're a sinner, you need help. You're a sinner, you need to do this. You've got to do this because you're a sinner. You're less than, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. It did that every year, kept it in front of their minds. And that's what uh, motivated and uh, in some ways dictated their lives. Is this sin consciousness and their inability really to do anything about it other than follow the prescribed method of atonement that the priest did. Okay? Now I want to tell you what Jesus did. When he atoned for our sins, when he became that sacrificial lamb, when he died on the cross, when he shed his blood, when he was sacrificed, there was something much more accomplished than what that little lamb or the blood of bulls and goats, other sacrifices could ever accomplish. Matter of fact, Hebrews says the blood of bulls and goats and lambs and all of that could never take away sin, couldn't take them away. It covered them temporarily couldn't take them away, had no power to do that. When Jesus died on the cross and his blood was shed, it says he took the sins of the world, all the world, past, present, and future members of the world, the whole world, not a person left out, not a single individual ever been born was left out of this. You understand that, right? Nobody. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The world to himself. Now, don't get Baptist on me in this, okay? Don't get Methodist on me. Don't get evangelical on me. Let your mind begin to contemplate what that means. The world was reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus. He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, here's what happened to you. Here's what happened to you. Here's the idea that many people have about atonement. That God, when he sees you, he doesn't see you, he sees Jesus in you. That's all he does. He sees Jesus. And so, there's a filter of the blood of Jesus between me, Carol, and God. There's a filter, blood. When God looks at Carol, he looks through the blood of Jesus, and it changes somehow his opinion of her. Okay? That's basically what the church has taught for ever through the blood of Jesus it's like God if that blood wasn't there I'm toast <laughs> because I don't I don't have any standing I don't I don't have any thing to give that God somehow is fooling himself about you but here's the truth of things folks there's not a filter between you and God of the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus isn't covering your sins temporarily or even permanently. He's not covering your sin. Jesus' blood cleanses you of your sin. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be what? White as snow. Jesus did pay it all, and all to him I owe. Sin did leave a crimson stain. What did he do? He washed it white as snow. What he did there was remove sin from you. That's what he did. It was death to sin, life to you. Now, when God looks at Carol, 
And he does. He does. When God looks at Carol, he doesn't see Carol through the blood of Jesus. When God looks at Carol, God sees Carol. Oliver. And he loves what he sees. He loves what he sees. He sees you. And he loves what he sees in you. Big difference from atonement of the past, right? You're cleansed of your sins. They've been removed from you as far as the east is from the west. Jesus took all of it on himself. Okay, let's look at tabernacles for just a minute. I'm just going to run through a few things and make a few comments. That's really the way it is. I'm going to give you a list of things that I, that I see in tabernacles, in booths. Okay, first of all, it was a feast of unity and a feast of safety. Leviticus 23, 40, 42, you can read about that. They built these little huts, these portable little houses kind of type things out of branches of trees that they wove together. Uh, but the feast itself was a feast of unity and a feast of safety. They left their homes. They came together in these temporary dwelling places. A feast of unity and a feast of safety. And here's what I see about us in this in the coming days ahead as we move farther toward tabernacles. <clears throat> there, will be, uh, uh, there will be unity in the body of Christ. In the bride of Christ, there'll be unity. Seems impossible to me right now, honestly. Seems, it seems impossible in the natural. It, it is in the natural. That we all could come to a place of unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Here's what's going to unify us in the last days, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. And, and this is a story of what God's going to do through his bride at the end, in the end days, the end times. God's not coming back from, for a maid. He, he's not coming back for a haggard old woman. He's coming back for a beautiful, spotless, holy, powerful bride. That's who he's coming back for. And we're it. <laughs> we need help, don't we? We need help. There's going to be some help. Let me tell you what I think. I think the unifying factor in the church in the days ahead, it's going to be the good news of the gospel. That's going to be the unifying factor in the church. When more and more people begin to understand the finished work of Jesus and the true nature of the good news, the true nature of God's love, the true nature of his fatherhood, the true nature of his union with us, the true nature of how sin has been dealt with and totally eradicated from God's heart, mind, the good news. Grace is going to unify the church. I've thought about this many, many, many times. What would it be like? What would the church be like? What would the bride of Christ be like if we all really began to see grace? If we all began to see what this means? Everybody would feel like we do. Everybody would. I tell this to people all the time. Well, not all the time, but occasionally. <laughs> occasionally. With friends and others who see grace as just, a, you know, another add-on to the other things. And it's, yeah, it's good, good, and I've heard that, and I know all about that. And I'm thinking, no, you don't. No, you don't. No, no, you don't. 
And the reason I know they don't isn't because they aren't good people. They are. Some of these people I've known for 35 years that I've preached with and preached in their churches and all this, close friends, lifetime friends. And I still love them. And we, I was still, we still fellowship. That's not the, not the story. The story is you don't see what I see. And the reason I know you don't see what I see is you don't feel like I feel. Everybody I know that sees what I see or sees what you see feels like we feel. Listen to everybody. We all have this common understanding, really, in some ways, of this great gospel of grace that's revolutionized our lives. It's all we can talk about. Last Sunday at the picnic, all you folks in these little groups, and I walk by and all you're doing is talking about grace. I'm thinking, yay. I, I, there's nothing else to talk about, really, as far as spiritual things are concerned. Hardly. It's going to be a unifying factor where, where you could go to any gathering, anywhere you want to go, regardless of who's there, and you're going to hear the same things, only from different perspectives. It's going to unify the church. There's a part of this in my book toward the end that uh, I just see this coming. I see it. I, I, I think the guy across the street, over here at San Lando Methodist. His, his, his group, you know, his group. I could go over there and be with his group. He could come be with our group. We got the same kind of group. And what a unifying thing that would be as we all focus our attention, instead of being divisive in our own little theological places, we all focus on the real reality of the finished work of Jesus. It's going to unify it's also a place of temporary dwelling places. I, I told you that just a minute ago. Now, <clears throat> I, I don't necessarily think that we're all going to have to leave our homes and hide out and, you know, all that kind of stuff. I, I, don't, I don't know. That's a possibility. I, I just don't know. But here's one thing I do know about that temporary dwelling place thing. Is that the church gatherings, the body of Christ gathering, may be temporary. A temporary dwelling place. Maybe I, I can hear it now. I mean, I just, I, I feel it. Word gets out. Okay, I heard about word of mouth probably. It'd have to be that really to be able to do it. Word of mouth even. I heard there's a gathering over at so-and-so. Okay, let's, let's go. You, you go to the gathering over at so-and-so. And it doesn't matter which gathering you go to. Really? Why? We're saying the same things. We're rejoicing about the same things. We're sharing the same things. We're building one another up in love. We're, 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 we're operating in the unity of the Spirit, which grace has caused to happen among us. I think the church is going to change in the last days. We're going to change methodology. Well, a lot of things are going to change. And we're going to become the temple of God that God's erecting using living stones. It'd be much, much more organic as it was in the first century. I think that'll be wonderful. I think it'd be great. Then it's a feast of joy and worship. Uh, Leviticus 23, 40 says, You shall rejoice before the Lord your God as you keep this feast. Rejoice before the Lord. 
And I believe we will rejoice. We will rejoice because everything in the restored church will be blessed. Won't be easy, probably, but it'll be blessed. Great joy and worship. You know, the na- for instance, the nation of Israel, when, when they were in Babylonian captivity, the captivity in Babylon, Psalm 137, it's really a poignant thing. It says, when they ask us, talking about the Babylonians, when they tell us or ask us, sing one of the songs of Zion. The Babylonians were asking them to sing the songs of Zion. And it says, we hung our harps on the willows and wept because we could not Sing the songs of Zion in captivity. Now, the other side of that, in, in uh, Psalm 126, it says when they were brought, God brought them out of captivity and established them again as his nation. It says at the end of that little passage of Scripture, it talks about the, the worship, the joy, all of that was being expressed as they came out of captivity in Babylon and the temple was being rebuilt, their you know, place was being rebuilt and all of this stuff through Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah and all, all these different people. It says, right at the end of it, it says, and we were glad. What an understatement. We were glad. It'll be a, a feast, a time, a season of joy, a time of gladness. Probably a level of joy and a measure of joy that comes by the Spirit and from the Spirit that's unlike almost any other joy we've ever felt. You may not be necessarily giddy, but boy, you're filled with joy. (laughs) I heard this Pentecostal preacher say one time he said if the devil if the devil can't see if the devil can't steal my joy he can't take my goods meaning he has no power over me if he can't steal my joy so it'll be a a feast of great joy then it's a feast of ingathering Exodus 23 16 and you shall observe the feast of the harvest of the first fruits of your labors from what you sow in the field. Also the feast of end gathering at the end of the year when you gather in the fruit of your labors from the field. The first fruits was Pentecost. At Pentecost, that's when there was harvest. Now there's a whole lot bigger one. It says when your vats are filled with grain and wine and oil overflowing. Now that speaks to the absolute uh, abundance of harvest it's and what brings that is the rains the former and the latter rain coming together in the last month so it I don't know what all that means it it means a presence and expression of the spirit of God that has been reserved for tabernacles for the last days that's what I think so regardless of what your eschatology is, you know, pre-trib, rapture, whatever your eschatology is, post-trib, uh, 
no trib, whatever it is, you're wrong. <laughs> and whatever mine is, I'm wrong because no man knows, not for sure. And remember, the, the impact of tabernacles, more than anything, is a revelation of the Father. You have a revelation of Jesus, Passover, revelation of the Holy Spirit, Pentecost, revelation of the Father in tabernacles. Outer court, inner court, holy of holies. That's, it. That's where God was, in the holy of holies. The Father was there. I wouldn't suggest you go in there and talk to him, but he's in there. <laughs> in the old tabernacle, that's where he was. That's where he manifested himself on earth. So, there's going to be a revelation of the Father. That's what grace does. An understanding of the true gospel really begins to show you who God is and what he's really like. You focus your attention on Christ, who was the exact image of God. You focus your attention on him and what he did and what he said and who he is and what he accomplished and all of that. And he's reflecting to you the Father's opinion about you. It's the same as his. God didn't, God didn't abandon Jesus on the cross. He was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. He was there. He was in it. It wasn't, it wasn't God that changed his mind about Jesus. Jesus, with the sins of the world upon him, changed his mind about the goodness of God, just like we did. Sin did that to him, just like it did it to us. Only he had all of them on him. So, it's an expression a reality greater than we've ever known of who the Father is. And I believe there, that he will show himself in that, himself. We will see, uh, the veil starts over our eyes or whatever begins to have pinprick holes in it so we can see more than we ever have about who God is. That's what I think. And then it was a feast of rest, a festival of rest. They were to do nothing. You're not to do anything. That doesn't mean laziness. It's a spiritual rest in the Lord, a rest. Writer of Hebrews says, I fear lest you stop short of entering his rest. That means resting from your works, trusting in God and his works. There's no more works. There's rest. Trusting and resting in him brings peace, brings the ability, if you come to rest, to hear God's voice speaking to you in ways that you probably haven't heard before. God just doesn't speak to me in turmoil. I, I can't hear him in turmoil. I've heard him sometimes in a cry of help. But most of the time, when I hear his still, small voice speaking to me, it's when I'm at rest. It's when I'm at a place of rest and trusting. And that's what's going to happen. It'd be a, a, a time where we all rest in his finished work and we hear his voice clearly to us. I already mentioned this, but it's also a feast of temporary dwelling places. I talked about the church and all, all of that 
It's also a festival of restoration, a feast of restoration. The word restoration means to make alive or whole or complete, to give back, to make thoroughly right. It's a feast of restoration. A great moment in the history of Israel with the nation was when in uh, Ezra talks about they had gotten the foundation of the temple laid after the Babylonian captivity. And when this was accomplished, they saw, they saw the structure and their place being restored. It, uh, the, the altar was destroyed. They couldn't do sacrifices. They had to rebuild all of that in, in the captivity after, after that. So they were building a temple of brick and mortar and stones and wood. God's building a temple of living stone. He said in three days, I'll raise it up. There not be a stone touching one another. When this, and it was destroyed that way in AD 70. He said, I prophesied, I will raise these stones in three days. I'll raise this temple in three days. What was he talking about? He's talking about him. Talking about himself. That was the prophecy about himself. You know that you are the temple of God. You're the dwelling place of God. You're the expression of God in the earth. And he's building that temple back where each living stone begins to find its place and fit where God supernaturally begins to assemble the body of Christ not just unify the body but assemble the body where your gifts are where your gifting lays lies. He, he, he's going to assemble us we're going to come to assembly And he's going to raise up, and I believe he's, he's going to raise up leaders who can lead us in this. He's going to raise up helpers who can help in this. He's going to raise up gifted ones who are gifted in all kinds of things, spiritually gifted. He's going to assemble the body and the bride. And then he's going to come and the new will begin forever. Please don't be afraid of the future, not your spiritual future. Just don't. I've often asked people, I said, well, wouldn't you have liked to have lived in the first century when the church, all this stuff was happening in the church and the miracles and all that kind of stuff? And I got to thinking about it, mm, not so much. <laughs> this is going to be different and better than that was. And that was glorious. Okay, stand up, we're through.
or I'm through. You may not be through. I don't know. parable of the ten virgins, there were five of them that were prepared and five of them that weren't. Remember that? What did the prepared ones do? Well, in the natural, they had oil in their lamps and all that kind of stuff. Let me tell you what preparation you need to make for what's coming. Continue to allow God to change your mind about what you think and how you think it as far as doctrine goes as far as spiritual things go continue to grow continue to accommodate the life that God gives you don't stop don't, don't, don't park where you are don't build a wall around where you are. Don't stay at Pentecost. Don't stay at Passover. Move, move on. Take them with you, the truths that are there, the realities of spiritual life that are there, and take them forward. Don't go backwards. Continue to learn about grace and begin to think about this. And when it says God has reconciled the whole world to himself, let that, let that say something to you. Okay, if he's reconciled the whole world to himself, then does that mean, what does it mean? Well, let him teach you about that. Continue to grow. Continue to allow the Lord to teach you. Don't stop. And there will be some people that are going to have to accelerate from, you know, two miles an hour to 100 miles an hour real fast. But God's capable of doing that for everyone. So... Not necessarily anything you have to do except to trust him and to keep learning, keep growing. Allow the Spirit to teach you more. That's what I'm asking. Well, Lord, thank you for this uh, future. For this future. Thank you for what's coming, Lord. Thank you for what's been. Thank you for what is. And I thank you so much for what's coming. And I pray, Lord, that... Grace will spread to more and more people, causing the giving of thanks to the glory of God. Lord, I pray for the release of the gospel around the world. I pray for enabling for those that are speaking, for megaphones to speak through, for platforms to be raised up where it can be expressed. Lord, I pray. I pray for our church. I pray for us. I pray for for our body, and I speak peace on them. I speak rest on them. I speak joy in the name of Jesus. I speak love, power, fearlessness, hope, hope. 
Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father, for the resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.